Well, good morning, everyone. It is uh, good to be here. And uh, like Steve said, I want to share a few things. And if you don't mind, just open in your Bible to Luke 19. We're eventually going to be there. But uh, before we get there, uh, I just want to say, first of all, worship team, thank you so much for your thoughtfulness in the service, in the music, and putting it all together. Uh, we've had a chance to do some traveling. And, uh, you know, and in the course of that traveling, sometimes you go to certain churches or certain places and, uh, and there is not thoughtfulness put together with the music. And, uh, and I just appreciate the focus leading us through and the word and the, the lyrics and, and just being anchored in Christ, which I appreciate that very much. So thank you. That's a lot of work for a music team, if you don't know that, but they, they work hard and there's a lot of effort that goes into that. To that time and getting here early to practice and all that's involved. So I appreciate that and also appreciate the friendship with Steve and Yvonne uh, for many uh, years and his work has loved, has shepherded you guys and his heart. I, I, I have to say there's one thing I'm in awe in of Steve that I, don't, I, I know I could never do. I could not produce the weekly word for what, 10 years? That is amazing when that thing comes out. That is a dedication. And, uh, I, you know, with all that goes on and competing space in your brain when you're a pastor, from dealing, shepherding people, caring for people, writing sermons, answering questions, solving problems, uh, emails that come in with stuff, and then to kind of catalog the week and catalog what's going on and to put that out there. What a, what a labor of love. And, uh, and I appreciate that. I'm, I'm always in awe. It shows up in my inbox every week. And I think, wow, how does this guy find the time to do that? So I'm guessing a lot of two in the morning at the computer moments for you. So, but uh, I appreciate that. But, you know, his heart to shepherd you. One thing that uh, you can't deny with Steve is that he loves the church and he loves to shepherd the people and, and bring the word to you. And, and I appreciate that. That's that is a blessing, you know, and, and, and you don't have that everywhere. So I appreciate that. Steve, the music team, what a great thing here. And uh, so, yeah, I appreciate that. And thanks for allowing us to come here. And I would just want to share with you a little bit, a couple things here. First of all, just a little bit about our transition. I know many of you don't know me, so you say, well, okay, you're transitioning. I don't care. No. But, uh, but I want to just share a little bit, some transitions going on at Kishwaukee Bible Church. Give you a little background there, and then we're going to be in Luke 19 together, and uh, and we're actually going to walk through the whole chapter. And uh, but don't freak out; we'll we'll kind of buzz our way through it, and uh, and because there's some really important things there that I want to share with you. But we are going through some transition, as Steve said. For 13 years, I was pastor teacher at Kishwaukee, and uh, last Sunday in June was our sending Sunday, uh, where they commissioned me to be a missionary. And uh, I want to just explain to you a little bit of what happened in that process. About 10 years ago, we invited a missionary to come and speak to the church. And this missionary was a man by the name of Frank Drown. And Frank Drown served on the mission field with uh, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, and, <coughs> and the Ecuador Five. And he was there when those men were martyred. And, uh, and he was the guy that was called upon to uh, pull the bodies off the beach after the, the uh, Indians had killed those, the, the five missionaries, they thought the spirits were going to torment them, the spirits of the dead. And so they asked the one missionary they trusted, Frank, to come get the bodies off. And so he, he did. He went down the river and pulled the 
four of them. They couldn't find one of them. And, and he took care of the wives and the children and was really instrumental. Uh, he, he, he showed up in Ecuador ahead of those five and kind of was the trailblazer that opened the door for them to come and then continued on the ministry after they were martyred. And, uh, and so we brought him to the church. And, and uh, one thing about Frank is that he's a missionary. And when we brought him there 10 years ago, he was 84, 85 years old. And, and he um, uh, had a passion for proclaiming Christ among the nations. And uh, when he came to the church, uh, he was very stirred to, to not just talk about the past, but to talk about a work he was doing already, like a mission work he'd been doing since he left Ecuador. Up in northwest Ontario, Canada, there were 23 uh, fly-in-only First Nation villages, Ojibwe, Cree, OG Cree, and, and very remote places. And, and there's 23 of them that, were, that, that are, you would call unreached, no gospel work going on, hard to get to, you can only fly in there. And, uh, and he was, since 1978, had been working to plant churches up in this area. Very difficult work. There's lots of reasons why, really complex work. And so when he came, we invited him to talk about the past, but his heart was to talk about the future. And, uh, and so he began to, to say, you know, Steve, you should take this mission. You should be involved with this mission. And, uh, and you know, you know, I respected Frank, so of course, he's saying you should be involved. I'm like, yes, sir, yes, absolutely. But in my brain, I'm thinking, no, we're not going to be involved in this mission. And uh, but he's like, you know, you, you need to do this. You need to be involved. And, and so I thought, I didn't know what to think at the time. You know, he's calling me then. He leaves from our church. He starts calling, hey, you're going to get involved in this mission. And, I'm, and I would be frank, I don't know how to be involved in this mission. You know, you're a veteran missionary. You're the guy. You've been doing this since 1978. Um, I know it's been hard work and not much has happened, but why would you think uh, we would do any better than you? I'm just a, I'm a pastor. I've got a congregation. and No, you should really be involved. I think this is something you should do. And, and, uh, and he pressed it for years. He pressed this. And uh, eventually, over time, he would say, you know, you've got to pray about this. You really need to pray about this. And, and, um, and he didn't let up. He wrote letters, wrote me notes, and and eventually, um, as he kept pursuing uh, me on this, over time, we began to say, okay, well, maybe we should try to do something here. And so we began to pray, and nothing would happen. I mean, you know, I'm thinking, you know, you're a full-time missionary, and you've done it all, and you kind of hit a lot of dead ends, and I'm in Illinois, DeKalb, Illinois, calling people on the phone, and they're not answering their phone, they're not talking... You know, nothing's really happening. And, and so, uh, and he said, you just got to pray more. You got to pray more. Well, what had happened was um, a few years later, 2011, we invited a man by the name of David Sitton to come to the church. David Sitton is the founder of To Every Tribe uh, Mission. To Every Tribe is a missions agency that is set up to send church planning teams to unreached people groups. They have a training center on the border of Texas and Mexico, and they train people in, in Mexico. They put them on church planning teams. They go in and they begin the process of learning how to plant a church by planting a church in northern Mexico. And they backfill that with a little bit of training and bringing in guest instructors to come in and teach them. But all the while, these, these teams are working to learn how to plant churches by planting churches in some dangerous areas of Mexico. They have to deal with the drug cartel, the gangs, the, the federale, all that's involved with life in northern Mexico. And so uh, David comes to the church, and I asked, David, who's some of your missionary heroes? He said, oh, my missionary hero is Frank Drown. 
And I said, oh, you know, hey, I, I know him. If you want to meet him, he's like, oh, I'd love to meet him. And I said, in fact, he's been kind of pushing us for a couple of years to get involved with this Canada work. Maybe you should take this work. And I thought, this is it. This is how God's using us, right? I'm going to be the networker. We're going to connect Frank and David together. It's going to be great. And David said, man, I'd love to take a baton from Frank Drum. So like, absolutely. He said, but Frank's handing you the baton, not me. So if we're going to be involved as a missions agency, you've got to take the lead. You don't understand. I have no clue what we're doing. I, you know, we can't take the lead on this. And so, so this thing's kind of unfolding, but we have this missions agency. And we had some guys that were involved in our training program there that I had the privilege of training, and uh, they had a heart to go to unreach people groups. And I said, hey, you ever consider Canada? And they said, Canada? There's no unreach people in Canada. Yeah, there is. Northwest Ontario, I began to tell them. And so surprisingly, they were like, we're open to going and so suddenly we have a missions agency, we've got missionaries, but no mission. Just an idea that there's these 23 villages that no one can get into. Uh, because we discovered that you have to know somebody from one of these villages to get into them. And, and if you don't know them, they don't get to know you. So it's just this weird little situation. Well, a, couple of years, a year later, after David came to the church, a uh, guy started attending our church. And, uh, and I met with him on a particular week just to talk to him. And, and uh, his name is Kevin. And Kevin, uh, I got to know Kevin. I said, Kevin, hey, you're from Canada. Because he was from Canada. I said, uh, you know, we've got this mission. And, and uh, uh, how, how would you get into one of these villages? He said, you can't get in unless you know somebody from one of those villages. Like, there's no way in. Doesn't matter how many times you try, you can't get in. That's what I thought. And then Kevin paused. He said, I'm from one of those villages. Really? And, uh, and so suddenly, he's like, who do you want to meet? And from that moment, this door opened. And we suddenly had the pieces in play. And last October, we were able to send the two missionaries up there. Now, what's interesting about that is that as the events begin to unfold, uh, you know, I'm teaching through the Gospel of Luke, I'm teaching through uh, Acts. And suddenly my heart is getting burdened to say, hey, we need about 120 missionaries for this region. Right? Not just two. Right? We need 120. And so I begin to share with our leadership team, we need to start preparing more missionaries to go as the doors are opening. And so through that process, the elders began to say, you know, we see this being something we would affirm in you, that you should... You should Go forward with this. The Lord opened this door. You should be involved with training these people. Uh, to every tribe came and they said, we have this offer for you. Uh, you could be our director of our training school down in the border of Texas and Mexico. And, uh, and you could oversee the training not only of missionaries that will go to Canada, but missionaries that will go all, all over the world. And so we prayed. It was a long process of a year and a half of prayer and, and processing with the leadership team, but eventually decided, yeah, that's, this is the path to go. And so uh, we, uh, a couple weeks ago, our sending Sunday, and, and so now I'm going down to be the director of the Center for Pioneer Church Planning, overseeing the training school that goes on in Mexico and, and, and the States, and also overseeing the mission work to Canada. And, uh, and so that's the transition that's going on at Kishwaukee now. Uh, there's an interim pastor that's there that is just filling uh, that space until the elders go through the process of praying and, and searching and putting job descriptions together and 
processing with the church. And so that's, that's the backstory of what led us to this moment and this transition. But I want to just now focus your attention on Luke 19. Because it wasn't just this mission that motivated me in this process. Actually, it was the scriptures that did it. And, and I will say Luke 19, this particular chapter, is a chapter of the Bible that did more to stir my heart and, and change me than maybe any passage had in years. You know, as you know, there are, you know, uh, every passage is powerful that you study. And, you know, when you're a, a, a pastor, you can ask Steve this, everything you're preaching that week is powerful. Uh, but this just one, you know, if, if every week you're being hit by a two-by-four, uh, when I went through log nine, uh, Luke 19, I, I was run over by a logging truck. I mean, it was powerful, this chapter. And, uh, and, and I want to sh- walk through this chapter with you for a reason. Because the scriptures are really what drives the mission, not just the needs. Right? It's not just the needs. It's not just that you could say, hey, look, there's three billion unreached people in the world. And I could stand up here and tell you stories about the three billion unreached, try to emotionally stir you. But, but that stirring will only last as long as those emotions last. And then you just get caught up in the Olympics or something and, and it'll go away. What drives the mission is the scriptures. And, and this particular chapter was one that I couldn't escape. Three, four years ago when I preached through it, 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 it so overwhelmed me that uh, it became the centerpiece of why we're doing what we're doing. So here's what I want to do today. I want to walk us through this chapter. Now, we're going to kind of jet trek through it until we get to the very end. And then we're going to kind of look at a particular passage itself. But I basically want to set the context for you because I want to say this to you. This passage begins with the story of Zacchaeus. And it ends with Jesus cleansing the temple. And what I want to tell you is that those two stories define each other. You can't understand the story of Zacchaeus without understanding why Jesus cleansed the temple. And you can't understand why Jesus cleansed the temple until you understand the story of Zacchaeus. The two are connected. And it's so powerful that if you understand the story of Zacchaeus, your natural inclination, if you were just following along the storyline of Jesus, is that you would demand that he cleanse the temple. You would demand it. And if it didn't happen in the storyline, you would be upset if you can understand the relationship between these two stories. Now, these two stories are like an Oreo cookie. They're like the outer cookie on the outside. In the middle is the cream filling, and this is the ten minus, the parable of the ten minus. And it holds these two accounts together. And I want to show this to you. There's an outline for this. And I'll kind of walk you through the outline. Now, we're going to walk quickly through this past, through the, the, uh, most of this. And I'm just going to summarize the stories for you. And then we'll look at a particular passage in the end. And I want to show you what I believe is a very important passage of Scripture that should radically not just redefine my life, but all of our lives in this room. If you hear what Jesus is saying here, it should radically change you. Um, it did me, and, uh, and, so, and I hope it does you. 
So I want to begin here by just, by defi- here's how I kind of divided up the chapter. The first thing I have is the, what I call the mission. The mission, and that's in, in Luke 19, 1 through 10. That's the very first thing that we see, is this thing called the mission. And, and then what I want to do is summarize that for you right now, and then we'll move on to the next chunk of this passage, which is the mandate, which is in 11, verses 11 through 27, and then the message, 28 through the end. So let's look, though, at the mission of Jesus. Here's what you have. This is set in a time. Now, I'm just going to kind of summarize verses 1 through 10 for you here. This particular passage is set in a time when Jesus is making his way from the northern part of Israel down to the southern part because he's getting ready to go die on a cross. This is this journey he's taking. And all along the way, he's picking up people because they're all going down for the Passover. And so he's got this entourage that's following him. Now, typically, the way it would work is that Jesus or anybody traveling in that day, they would walk from town to town. Every time they entered a town, they would find a place to sleep and, uh, because it was dangerous to travel at night. Now, in this particular case, Jesus, he's walking, and he walks into Jericho, it says, and as he makes his way into this town, he doesn't stop to find a place to stay. He keeps walking. And Luke tells us, he keeps walking till he gets to the end of the town. And then we know that he actually leaves and goes outside the town. I'll tell you how I know that in a second. Now, when he makes his way, the crowd is beginning to gather. Right? Jesus is very popular. Everybody likes him. And uh, they want to know what he's doing. And, the, and, and so not only does he have his entourage, now he's got everybody from this town gathering. Now, along the way, there's a man who wants to see him. His name is Zacchaeus. What do we know about Zacchaeus? He is a wee little man, right? He's a wee little man. I don't know. You know, could you imagine if like everybody in Jesus' day was like six foot seven and he was like six ten, right? You know, he, but he was wee to them. I don't know. But to us, we think he's like this short, right? Because we're like, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, right? I mean, he's a little guy. So he's walking along and he can't see Jesus because the crowds are gathering. So if you're a wee little man, and you want to see Jesus, what do you have to do? you got to find, put yourself somewhere. Jesus steps outside the city, and we know he's outside the city because outside the city of Jericho were what kind of trees? Sycamore trees, exactly. There were these sycamore trees right outside. And so Zacchaeus, the wee little man, he climbs upon the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to. Exactly, right. So he gets up there. And he sees Jesus. I believe Jesus was walking to the sycamore trees. Because Jesus knew what was going to take place. And he knew that when he made Zacchaeus, he made him short. Fully aware of all of this. So he goes, when he sees Zacchaeus, he says, I'm staying at your house. Which would have made everybody go, they would have just gasped. Why? Because he wasn't just a tax collector. He was a chief tax collector. If, you, if you're from the city of Chicago, I would illustrate this way, he was the mob boss, right? He was the guy in charge of all of those evil tax collectors that rip off their countrymen. And this guy gets a little money from this guy, this guy, this guy, you know, he's just a criminal, running a criminal enterprise, ripping off his own countrymen. Jesus is staying with this wicked guy. But what does Zacchaeus do, man? Right away, Jesus comes to his house and he says, I'm giving half my money to the poor. 
Now, that's an important part of the story, and I'll just share this with you now. If you were to go back and look at Luke 18, beginning in verse 18, you don't have to turn there, that'd be the story of the rich young ruler. Remember the guy who followed every law? And Jesus said, well, why don't you give away your money to the poor? And he said, no way. Then in Luke 19, what do we see? Zacchaeus, man, just giving it half of it to the poor. He's just giving it away. Something's different in this guy that wasn't in the rich young ruler. It's a powerful contrast, Luke's pointing out. So he gives away half his money. And then he returns 400% to all the people he ripped off. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine if the government came in and said, you know, we've kind of overcharged you in your taxes over the years, so we're, we're going to pay you back 400% of what we ripped off. be amazing. Right? It would be amazing. This is what he's doing. Jesus then makes this statement. He says, this man is a son of Abraham. All the Jews heard this. He's saying, this guy isn't an outcast. He's part of the family of God. And then we get to verse 10. This is the key verse. Look at verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The point of this mission is to seek and to save the lost. Isn't that powerful? To go after them and to save them. Right? It isn't that Jesus just set himself up in some town and said, hey, if you want to get saved, come to me. Show me that you got some skin in the game. Make your way this way. No. The Son of Man walks through a whole town just to get to a sycamore tree so some short guy who is absolutely a pagan rebel can become a child of Abraham and be saved. Jesus is saying, this is my mission. There are people who do not know me, who are dead in their sins. And I have come to find them, to go after them, and to save them. Okay? The mission of Jesus. Now, we move on in the storyline. What happens? We now move to what I want to call the mandate. The mandate. That's the second. This is the white filling of our Oreo, right? This is the first cookie we just had, the mission. Now the white filling, the mandate. In chapter 19, verses 11 through 27, Jesus begins to unfold a parable. But I want, to look at, I want you to look at verse 11 for a moment because I want you to see how he sets up this parable. He says, As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Important transition. Here's what Luke is saying. Jesus is making this huge point. He just redeemed this horrible guy. Right? He just redeemed a guy who's a criminal, who's a crook, who's ripped people off. And then he's saying, I want to make sure they don't miss the point here. Because Jesus knew that he's on his way to Jerusalem. And and what are they tempted to do? They're tempted to do what we are tempted to do today. Get caught up in the end time stuff. Get caught up in the consummation of the ages. The Messiah is going to walk into Jerusalem and it's going to be the consummation of the ages. And this is going to be so cool. And, and, And all of a sudden, you're so focused on that. You miss the mission. And so he says, I don't want them to miss the mission. So I'm going to tell a parable. Now let me explain to you some history so this parable will make sense to you. 
You've got to understand a little Roman history. Here's the Roman history. <clears throat> when, when Rome would conquer a country, they would establish what they called a king over that country. We would probably use the word governor, but they, they would use the word king. And the way they would do this is, let's say the Roman Empire is going to conquer Rockford. What they would do is they say, okay, uh, we are now going to appoint a king over Rockford. And they would say, well, we're going to pick Steve Brandon. He's, we're going to, we're going to, amen, right? <clears throat> He's going to be our king. But Steve has to go through a Senate hearing. He has to go through a Senate hearing. And so Steve is invited to come to this Senate hearing. Now, the reason why they're going to pick Steve is because Steve is a very successful businessman and he has a lot of ventures going and, and, and he's clearly a leader, he's clearly a business leader. And so before Steve comes to the Senate hearing, he's going to have to turn his business over to his vice presidents and his, and his other managers because he's going to be gone in Washington for about a year and a half to two years. So someone's got to run the Brandon Enterprises. So he's going to give away his work to these guys to run it for him. So Steve's going to give away this work. And then what he's going to do, is he's going to come up uh, to Washington and he's going to be uh, put through a Senate hearing. Now, word will get out to everybody in Rockford. We have chosen Steve. The, the, the empire would say, we've chosen Steve to be our king. If any of you oppose Steve, you are welcome to come and make your case. You can make your case against Steve. Mind you, though, if we do approve him, he's probably going to kill you. So make sure your case is a good case. But people would come. There would be other people who would want the post. Say, wait a minute, Steve shouldn't be running king of Rockford. I want to be king of Rockford. I'm going to go up there, and when the Senate hearing comes, I'm going to tell everybody how horrible Steve is. So that, and then through that process, if, if, the, if the Roman Senate said, yes, we approve Steve, Steve then becomes the king, and what he's going to do is he's going to come back, and he's going to take... Settle accounts with his businessmen, all right? I gave it away to my managers, how, how they do with the business. And then what Steve's going to do is execute every single person that opposed him. And that's how he would start his kingship. That's what this parable is. Look at Luke 19, verse 11. As he heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they had supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas, and he said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens, notice his citizens, I lost my place here because I have these new glasses with uh, bifocal bottoms and I can't see sometimes. Um, But his citizens hated him. And sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Okay, so now what happens? He goes up. There's people who don't want him. And then the man gets the kingdom. I'm just going to summarize it. And he comes back. And one guy's got ten minas. Another guy's got five minas. Another guy's got one minas. One mina. Right? Just a value of money. He goes to the guy with ten and he says, what did you do with my money? And he says, I doubled it. And he says, man, you're great. I'm going to give you more. The guy with five, he doubles it. Great, I'm going to give you more. The guy with one, he said, you know what? You are a horrible taskmaster. And you, 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 you steal, you rob, you do all these horrible things. I knew that you, you take seriously your money because you're just such a cruel guy. 
And so I buried your money in the sand so that nothing would happen to it. And the man said, you are wicked and worthless. If I was that cruel of a person, you should at least have been wise enough to put it in the bank. Because I gave you that money to invest it, not to bury it. Depart from me. You have no place in my kingdom. Boy, you've got to know that part of the story. Why? Because Jesus is on a mission, isn't he? What's his mission? What's his business, if we want to tie it into the parable? His business is to do what to the lost? To seek and to save the lost. Jesus wants everybody to know, hey, when I enter Jerusalem, that isn't the start of the whole end of the age. I'm actually going to go to heaven to prepare a kingdom. And I'm leaving you my business until I return. And if you don't do something with that business, you have no part in my kingdom. Wow. I don't know if anybody ever told that to me until I read that. And I went, I can't believe it. He just told me that if I don't invest the gospel, I'm wicked and worthless. Wow. The story also tells me that along the way, there are going to be people who are going to oppose Jesus. And when he returns, he's going to deal with it. Right? There are many who don't want Jesus as king. That's sometimes what makes us not want to take the gospel out. Right? Go to a place that might kill you. Go to Ecuador, you might wind up with arrows lying on a beach somewhere. And you say, well, why go then? Because Jesus said to. And he said, don't worry, I'll bring justice upon those who oppose my, my rule as king. We go out and tell everybody we want Jesus to be the king and what happens. They might want to kill us, but that's okay. Christ is going to deal with it. The point of the story is that Jesus is on a mission. And his mission is to seek and save the lost. But he's more than a man on a mission. This, this story tells us he's a king on a mission. He's a king on a mission. And because he's the king, we submit to him. We submit to him as king. We serve at the pleasure of the king. So now, that's the mandate then. The mission is to seek and save the lost. The mandate then is... If Jesus is the king, and he's telling me exactly what's going to happen, I'm going to go and prepare a kingdom. And when I go and prepare the kingdom, I'm leaving my work in your hands. I'm leaving my work in your hands until I return. So the point isn't to say, well, you know, I, I made sure that the gospel was protected, so I did nothing with it. We already know how Jesus feels about that. He thinks that's wickedness. He doesn't think that's righteousness. So now this then leaves us with the final section, the message. There's a lot I skipped in there, by the way. I hope that you study this, because there is so much in this. But now we need to get to the message, though. The message then begins in verse 28. And in the message... Jesus now enters Jerusalem. Now we understand what's going to take place as he enters Jerusalem. We know that he's going to walk in and that everybody's thinking this is the end of the age and they're worshiping him and they're giving him honor as king. This event's going on and Jesus is saying this is the event that's going to take place. This is what's going to happen here. And of course what happens? The, the religious leaders say, tell him to stop worshiping you this way. And Jesus says, I can't. I won't. 
Because even if I told him to stop it, the rocks would do it, because this is the will of God. This is the will of God. Right? So he's got this opposition coming. And now we know why that opposition is there. They're opposing his kingship. This is what Psalm 2 said. The reason why the nations war and fight is because they want to be king of the world, but God's appointed his king over the world. But people don't want Jesus as king. So here's what they have now. This opposition's coming. Then Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, right? Because these leaders are opposing the very heart of God. And it breaks his heart as he sees these people who have been absolutely led astray because there's leaders that are opposing the very God that they're claiming to follow. And his heart is broken. But then he gets to verse 45. Now, I made the statement to you. If you understood the story of Zacchaeus, you would understand why Jesus cleansed the temple. So let's look at what happened here. Look at verse 45. This is where I want to spend the remainder of our time here. So it says, As he entered the temple, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, Maybe some of you in this room know what's going on here, but I'll just kind of explain to you what's happening. During the Passover, there's a lot of worship that's going on. There's a lot of animals that need to die during this time, right? There's sacrifices that are going to be happening. God laid out very clearly how he wanted these sacrifices to be done, what kind of animals are to be used, things like that. You've got people traveling from all over the world. And so the priests would oftentimes raise the animals themselves there in Jerusalem so that you wouldn't have to try to keep two turtle doves alive on your trip from Iraq to Israel. It's a very simple thing. After a while, the religious leaders realized, you know what we should do is we should kind of make this that you can't bring your own animals. Right? You have to use ours. Only ours are the approved animals, right? Certified, rabbi approved. And so, and so they would have, this was the only place you could get them. So now people would come, and, and they're going to participate in all kinds of things, not only the great moment of the Passover, but all the sacrifices, all the, the time in the temple that they, you know, from coming from around the world to worship. And so the only place big enough that they could sell all these animals for the millions of people that are coming to Jerusalem was this giant courtyard, this huge courtyard in the outer part of the temple. And so they had loaded up that courtyard And in that courtyard had all the animals so that you, if you were coming from Iraq to Jerusalem, could buy your two turtle doves and go in and and give your offering or or whatever else you were doing. And so picture all these animals, millions of people, all kinds of sacrifices going on daily, night and day, leading up to the big moment when the Passover lamb would be slaughtered. Jesus comes into the temple and he just goes into that courtyard and just starts wiping out all the tables, kicking them over driving the people out, and he says, this is to be a house of prayer. Now, do you see something? Do not just take this and say, see, Jesus doesn't like bookstores and churches, right? It's too simple of an observation. That's not the point. That little statement, my house shall be a house of prayer, is in quotes, isn't it? It's in quotes. What is it a quote of? He's quoting Isaiah chapter 56. Isaiah 56, verses 6 and 7. Now I'm going to read that to you. You can turn there if you want. Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56 is a powerful chapter. God 
is outlining his heart for the world. In Isaiah chapter 40, God begins to unfold the work that's going to happen through the Messiah, the coming Messiah. When you get to chapter 56, you begin to see that God isn't just offering salvation to Jews. In chapter 56, He's offering salvation to the nations. And when you get to chapter 56, verses 6 and 7, listen to what God says. He says, and the foreigners... You know, by the way, when you see the word foreigners... In the Old Testament, you could put the word Gentiles in there. All Gentile means is nations. When you read the word Gentiles in the New Testament, just read the word nations. The nations. Right? And the nations who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord and to be His servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath does not profane it and holds fast my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Hashtag nations. Here's what he's saying. God is saying, listen, I'm not just doing this work for Israel. I'm doing it for the nations of the world. And what God did when He built the temple is He built this large outer courtyard. Does anybody know what the outer courtyard is called? The court of the Gentiles. Or the court of the nations. That to me is how I would do it if I were translating a Bible. I wouldn't use the word Gentile. The court of the nations. Why? See, when God divided up the nations... In Genesis 10, right? He divided everything up. Tower of Babel created all the nations. In Genesis 11, what did he do? Or Genesis, I'm sorry, he divided them up in Genesis 11. What did, he, what did he do in Genesis 12? He made one more nation. I'm making one more out of this guy, Abram, so that he could bless those other ones. Because you see, my vision for seeking and saving is the nations. What happened in Israel? The space that God designed for the nations to come. The space that God designed so that they, as a beacon of light to the world, could say, come, all you from the nations, come and worship God right here. You get to worship God right here. They took that space and used it for themselves. But the work of Jesus is to seek and save the lost. In just a short week, He's going to die on the cross And so the first thing he does is he makes room for the nations to come because he's dying for the world, not just for Israel. And he's telling Israel, don't use this space for yourself. This is to be a house of prayer for all people. They knew what he was saying when he was quoting Isaiah 56. You lost your heart for the nations. One of the things that preaching does, I think Steve can attest to this. I'm going to put words in your mouth, Steve. One of the things that preaching does is that you are forced to grapple with texts like this, and suddenly your heart for the nations opens up. And you can't preach without going to the nations. You couldn't ask Steve, preach here 52 Sundays a year, and never go to Nepal. He'd have to stop preaching. Because one thing you're forced with to see in the text, personally, as a pastor, you want to grapple this, you want to apply it, One thing you're forced to do is to go to the nations. 
Because you realize this message isn't just for here. It's meant to multiply. He's given us this gospel because he left us to carry out his work. To do what? To go seek and save the lost. That is the work. And if you were to say, Steve, you know what? You can't ever leave. You've got to stay here. For... Steve would go crazy. Why? Because his spirit and his conscience would be telling him, I'm burying this in the sand. This isn't just for here. It is so that we would go to the nations and let them know. Why? Because God, right away at the very beginning, when he created the nations, he said, I'm sending one to bless you. And when he designed the temple, he designed space for them to come and worship. And then, when he ascended, when Jesus ascended into heaven, what did he tell us? Go to the nations and make disciples of them. And if you don't, Luke 19 tells us, you're on the bad side of that equation. You're on the bad side. So, that passage was a two-by-four, a log truck rolling over me. And I realized, for me, it meant I've got to go prepare people to go to the nations. Because that's what he gave me to do. For you, I don't know what it means. But I would tell you this, that if we don't have a view of the nations... We're too narrow in our understanding of what Jesus has left us here to do. We're too narrow. Over 900 times in the Old Testament, God said, I want my glory to be made known among the nations. 900 times. If my wife told me to do something five times in one day and I didn't do it, I would be on the bad side of that equation. If God tells you 900 times in the Old Testament and we say, yeah, but that's just for those that are called. No. He's left us here to do his work. So let me wrap this up. A few points I want to just make in conclusion here. Jesus is on a mission to seek and save the lost. He's on a mission to seek and save the lost. When we are saved, we are called to this mission. This is what we're to carry out until he returns. This was the very heart of God from the very beginning. And so we must not take what God has designed to make his name known to the nations and just use it for ourselves. And the last thing we'd ever want to do is build a commune and hide out until the rapture. This is the very heart of God. I don't know what that means for you, but in many ways, it doesn't matter because Jesus distributes different priorities within this. But what I do want to challenge you with is this. Jesus, this is the very heart of Jesus. And I will tell you that the moment you enter into that and you begin to start saying, okay, God, how does this work? How am I to do this? You begin to start having a world opened up in your life that is the most incredible thing ever. And I'm just using Steve as an example here, but I'm sure when he comes back from Nepal... He's physically tired, but spiritually out of this world because he's living out the very purposes for which God left us here, to seek and save the lost until he returns. Would you join me in prayer? Father, what a powerful passage, Lord. I, I didn't even do it justice. 
But Lord, I pray that it would speak to us. Lord, I don't want it to speak to us in in a way that we act out of fear. But Lord, I pray that it would speak to us in a way that we'd act out of conviction. And that it would form and inform our conscience and inform our hearts and form our, our passions. Lord, I pray that it would, would, would cause us to see something bigger than this moment. I pray, God, that it, that it would cause us to see that you have left us here to be part of something so much bigger than we could ever imagine. That a handful of people in one church in Rockford, Illinois, could be used to make your glory known among the world. Lord, maybe that happens as the world comes here to us and we take that seriously. Maybe that happens as, as this church begins to, to make your name known even within its own local community. But Lord, I pray that it would reach far out and that we'd be faithful with what you've invested to us. Lord, may we take this seriously because you do. You do. and You made it clear to us that you didn't want us to lose this and to get caught up with ourselves or the end of the age or other things that that cause us to take our eye off of what this moment is supposed to be. So Lord, please use us in this mighty way. And God, I pray that you would would not only do this work here, Lord, I pray that you'd provide the 120 missionaries that are needed in Canada. I pray that you would raise up young people from this room that would go into the far reaches of the world to be on that mission that you are on of seeking and saving the lost. You've entrusted to us. And with this little vapor we have, God, may we use it to make your name known. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.